0: I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks uh ben we're at your house this week that's right we are change of venue for the cme podcast recording you just returned from the gym
1: got swole as you can see i don't have to tell
0: you several minutes late as your wife informed me which i said to her i'm not surprised motherfuckers uh you just fired down some apple slices and now you're drinking a muscle milk that's in right. your han solo t-shirt right so just that is an to...
1: accurate depiction of what is happening
0: what you do over at the gym today what muscle groups did you work a little bit of everything little bit of... Just whaled
1: wail, on my pecs and lats. Uh, did a little bit of circuit training. Got the old heart rate up a little bit. Uh, then swung by the gym. Restocked the Fuji apples, which, as I told you, that's the good stuff.
0: You, you swung by the store? Swung by the store. Okay. You said swung by the gym. You meant the store. Swung by the but store. But you're lightheaded.
1: Right next to the gym.
0: You probably need a nap. The
1: circuit was pretty hard. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, that's why... You're looking at me. I see the expression on your face. You're like, damn, he's swole. That's why. I yeah. just wanted to explain to you why.
0: I'm looking at you Nutrition. Like, like Johnny Valiant used to look at Hulk Hogan. <laughs> look at the latissimus dorsi.
1: You just, look you, at the
0: trapezius muscles. A
1: lot of people, Chad, put the work in the gym and forget about the work at the dinner table.
0: That's right. You can be in as, in as good a shape as you want. If you're not in shape from your chin to your nose, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs>
1: if, you don't, if you're not firing down the slices of Fuji apple, God help you.
0: I feel like we just did the old man special right there, especially there. the part about you working all muscle groups.
1: That's right. Yeah, and then later I might read a book for the most important muscle group,
0: my mind. Well, Ben, speaking of looking swole, the Dundasso shirts are back up on Cotton Bureau this course week. Of course they are. With uh, crew neck crewneck sweatshirts now for fall, another uh, listener request, proving that the CME universe are just shit-eating wild men and women for the Dundasso shirt, which keeps fucking getting brought back again and again.
1: Wait, are you saying uh, sweatshirt?
0: Yeah, crew neck sweatshirt. Like, the last time they brought it back, they added hoodies. Okay. And this time, somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, got after Cotton Bureau saying he didn't like things hanging off the back of his neck. How about a crew neck? And the Cotton Bureau people, who frankly... And in all seriousness, I can say this at this point, seem totally awesome. We're like, yeah, we can do that. So they put it back up with uh, sweatshirts. So that's all it takes, huh? Like one guy. Well, no, 50 people have to go or 40 people, I think, have to go to the website and request that the design comes back, which has now happened like five times. So jokes on me, I guess, except for the money that they send us. Yeah. Which then goes into the CME kitty, which at some point will either pay for new equipment or, or buy some kind of fabulous CME experience.
1: Uh, I really want to know what goes on inside the head of the person who is like, I like the idea of a Dundasso sweatshirt. However, you know, obviously I'm going to want to wear it to a job interview and I don't want to have a walk in there with a hoodie because yeah. that's just unprofessional. Yeah,
0: you don't want to look like
1: a jerk. Give me a crew neck sweatshirt.
0: You want, you, you want to be wearing a collared shirt underneath that.
1: Right. I'm taking lunch at the Four Seasons after this.
0: Well, we got music again this week also from a uh, friend of the podcast and current CME DJ in residence, The Fifth Element, out of Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at the at uh, facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter, at The Fifth Element, or soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And you know by now, that's a the with an A, and the number five. Oh, you Fifth know that. The Fifth Element.
1: You know that for sure.
0: Once again, the co-main event podcast is brought to you this week by Fulton & Rourke, a men's grooming product company built for the way guys operate. If you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you've no doubt heard us talk about their many fine products. This week, we want to tell you about a new offer the guys at Fulton & Rourke are making just for CME listeners.
1: That's right, Chad. This week, Fulton & Rourke is bumping up the savings for the CME universe. Just go to FultonAndRourke.com slash CME to sign up for their mailing list and get 20% off your next order. The guys at Fulton & Rourke admit their emails might be slightly less entertaining than the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. But they give you the heads up on new products and special offers, and they won't email you more than once a week.
0: You know, I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to guess that it's also really easy to unsubscribe. So easy. Because, frankly, the CME doesn't roll with people whose email newsletters are difficult to unsubscribe from. Why would we? Listen, though, if you're looking for ideas on how to use that 20% discount, Fulton & Rourke recommends the Shackleford Solid Cologne for this time of year. It's sandalwood with amber and hints of leather, and it gives off a vibe that is both masculine yet sophisticated you get
1: that and anything else you like at 20% off by going to Fulton slash CME and signing up for the Fulton and Rourke mailing list today
0: thanks for picking that up for me no problem three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one it really could have been any 38 year old guy out there and frankly some of y'all probably would have done better and in round number two not to do too many spoilers But I think Fabricio Verdum versus Travis Brown is the early leader for Are You Fucking Kidding Me Fight of the Year. And in round number three, Stipe! But seriously, the fuck was Overeem doing out there? Even when he wasn't running around all weird, he was standing sideways and holding his hands up like he just jumped out from behind a tree and yelled surprise. All that plus just saying stuff and Are You Fucking Kidding Me? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little, a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Derek Weintraub. He writes, I had a surprisingly good time watching UFC 203 for the lowells, if nothing else. But I'll tell you guys where the UFC loses me. It's when they follow up last weekend's high-impact comedy of errors with next weekend's Middle of the Road, but somehow very serious-seeming FS1 card, where Dustin Poirier takes on Michael Johnson and Uriah Hall fights Derek Brunson. Those two fights will probably be fine, sure, whatever, but honestly, it all starts to feel like a bit much for me. At the risk of sending the podcast back into a tailspin about oversaturation, what can I do to get myself hyped about this card? Or should I just, you know, skip it and spend time with the family?
1: Well, I I mean... You you make that last option sound pretty appealing. Like maybe. Depends on the family, I guess. I guess it does. Uh, maybe the family could could use a little special attention after you're spending all this time watching these lull worthy uh, UFC cards. But I do get what you're saying when the big pay per view event, especially, comes with this kind of mixed bag appeal of like, hey, serious heavyweight title fight, totally batshit insane, you know, former pro wrestler gonna fight and it seems like you got a lot of different kind of stuff pulling you in there and then the next week is just like and back to the fs1 thing that we're just kind of doing more or less constantly
0: yeah i I could see this one going either way from like a hardcore fan perspective like if if maybe you were down on the uh the spectacle style nature of some of the stuff that happened at ufc 203 maybe you are totally looking forward to an event with these uh Serious and sober matchups featuring Uriah Hall versus Derek Brunson and Dustin Poirier against Michael Johnson, uh, where it gets weird for me or where it, it like underscores the nature of oversaturation, which as as Derek Weintraub writes to us, we don't want to get back into that tailspin. But if you're the UFC and you're packing up the octagon, I assume there's only one octagon, one small one, one big one. If you're packing up the octagon from Cleveland last week and taking it to Hidalgo, Texas this week, that to me really kind of gets to the nature of the carnival-style traveling circus that you are running at this point because those are not big media markets, either one of them. So yeah, to go from one week in Cleveland to one week in Hidalgo really lets me know what you're doing, what you're up to yeah. these days. Well, and, you know, you talk about the guys
1: who are on the top of this card, Dustin Poirier, Michael Johnson, Uriah Hall, and Derek Brunson, you know, all good seasoned fighters. But it does, this is one of those cards that does just feel like, hey, there's fighting on because it's Saturday. You know, we wouldn't let a weekend go by without there being some fights. And so this one is just kind of a a plank to get us to the next one. Uh, that's how this comes off.
0: Yeah, to me, this fight card in and of itself, like I feel like the co-main event here is the thing I'm most interested in where Derek Brunson is going to try to make it five in a row in the middleweight division. Uh, It kind of seems like this is the one he has to beat Uriah Hall, who obviously came into the UFC with uh, in what in retrospect proved to be way too much hype. But uh, if Derek Brunson wins this one, he'll be pretty close to maybe moving into the, uh, into the realm of the elites with the middleweight division, where almost all of the matchups are pretty awesome. Uh, and then De- Derek Brunson, in fact, will be 7-1, and I believe, in the UFC, with, with his only loss coming to Yoel Romero uh, in January of 2014. So, like, that'll be uh, pretty good standing for Derek Brunson, who is one of these guys creeping on a come-up at 185 pounds that maybe not everyone in the world has heard of, but who seems pretty awesome.
1: Right. At the same time, to get back to Derek Weintraub's question, this does seem like a highly DVR-able fight card. Sure does. Maybe you take the kids out for some yo. Uh, play a little miniature golf and you you skip through all the endless commercials for FarmersOnly.com and just catch the good stuff later on.
0: Derek Brunson's Wikipedia page, by the way, re- reveals that he is Derek T. Brunson, but does not say what his middle name is. Just gives the middle initial. Oh,
1: T. see, that's that's what I got going on. I got just the middle initial.
0: So no no middle name at all. No middle just name. Just the letter.
1: Just the initial. Really oh, confuses people out there. That's pretty
0: confusing. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and guess that the T stands for Tiberius and Derek Brunson.
1: Okay, let's go ahead and start that. Let's see how long it takes for that to get on Wikipedia. I
0: Assume within minutes. Uh, The next question this week comes to us from Diana James. She writes, It kind of broke my heart to see Jessica Andrade tear the beating heart out of Jojo Calderwood's chest, but damn, that girl looks good at 115. Is she a true threat to our beloved Joanna violence?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, that's that's always going to be the question, right? As soon as we see somebody look pretty good, uh, then we're immediately trying to... Fantasy match make them uh, with Joanna uh, Champion. She does, though, look like kind of a damn powerhouse at that
0: weight, does she not? She does. She looks really good since coming down from women's bantamweight. But I think, you know, uh, above and beyond everything else, it speaks to the dominance of Joanna Champion and the like, the shadow that she casts over the entire division. That uh, Jessica Andrade gets two wins at strawweight over Jessica Penney and now uh, J J Calderwood, and suddenly we're like. Well, she's the next title challenger, right? Like where it's—it feels like we're grasping at straws. It feels like we're six months from a season of the Ultimate Fighter, where we uh, cobble together the other best strawweight champions in the world and have them fight in a tournament, and the winner gets a shot at at Joanna Yajic.
1: Six months is generous, I think, <laughs> at this point. You know, and I think the question when you see somebody like Just Gondrage and have that that kind of style, and you wonder how it will play out against somebody like a UWN champion, I. We'll look back at Uyen and Jaychik's last fight there with Claudia Gadelia and be like, okay. The question for me is not whether you can do that to her a little bit; it's whether you can do it to her long enough to finish the fight, or you know, for all five rounds and win a decision, because that's the the hard part, as we saw in her last title defense.
0: Yeah, maybe if anything can be said uh, for Jessica Andrade in terms of her, uh, you know, her prospects at taking the title is that she's stopping people. When she gets them, she gets them in there, you know, a first round win over Joanne Calderwood and a second round win over Penne in her last fight. She's not necessarily going out there and trying to uh, grind out decisions. So, uh, you know, maybe if she does, in fact, get to a title fight, she doesn't have to go out for 25 minutes and try to win a decision. Maybe she can force a stoppage.
1: And, you know, though, uh, the the question here from Diana James, though, does touch on what I felt, which was the. The heartbreaking nature of watching, you know, somebody like Joanna, Joanne Calderwood, who needed this one, needed to go out there and look good in this one, and she seems, you know, super likable. You want to see her do well, and then uh she goes out there and just gets kind of throttled, and that one stings for her, you know, especially after she was just talking about the difficulty of even having enough money to, to have a good training camp and get all the things she needs to get to go in there prepared, Uh and... She had those two wins in a row. Then she comes right in here and loses pretty quickly, and it's fairly one-sided. That's rough, man. That's a rough go for her.
0: It is rough and a rough turn of events for a likable fighter. Uh, perhaps there's always going to be voiceover work for Joanne Calderwood, per- most specifically maybe in like children's cartoons. Yeah. Like You close your eyes, and she sounds like one of the puffins on the show Puffin Rock I was my just, three-year-old daughter is pretty into right now. I was just
1: thinking you could really have a kind of awesome – my Little Pony character with Joanne Calderwood's voice and accent and everything. I'd be into it.
0: This was the UFC where I discovered, though, the, the, the like volume hell of turn the TV way up to try to hear Joanne Calderwood during her hype vignette. Turn it way down when Mike Goldberg starts talking and turn it way <laughs> up again because Joanne Calderwood's talking again and turn it way down because Mike Goldberg is like inside the octagon or whatever he does.
1: Yeah, you could use some closed captioning in your life at that point. <laughs>
0: that seems right. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Nick Cohen. He writes, so when is Uriah Faber's induction ceremony into the Dundasso Hall of Fame? Yeah, Uriah Faber went and stuck his finger deep, deep in the eye socket of Jimmy Rivera this past weekend. And I saw on the internets today that Jimmy Rivera has a crack behind his, uh, what, his cornea. Yeah, Does that seem right?
1: Something like that. Some that, that's definitely a, that is definitely a part of the and eye. Just I can a confirm part of the that. Eye. Uh, yeah, man, that was, that was a bad one. And I think the, what made that one seem to people like more Dundasso-ish was that Uriah Faber was pretty clearly losing at that point, And he just reached out with an open hand and slapped him right in the the face and finger went in the eye. It wasn't like the normal thing of, okay, the guy's advancing and you kind of stick your hand out there to check him and his, he runs right into your finger or any of the, the normal accidental I yeah, poke this
0: one was notable because Joe Rogan was unable to explain it away when they showed it on the slow motion replay. Joe Rogan, by the way, seemingly continually giving less and less of a fuck as his UFC career perhaps begins to enter its late stages. Like he's just going to go out there. And even more than before, say whatever the fuck he thinks, which I appreciate from a UFC broadcaster. But, yeah, on this slow mo- motion replay of Uriah Faber and uh, Jimmy Rivera, you could tell he wanted to be like, oh, an incidental punch. And maybe that's what he expected when the replay started. And he had to kind of be like, yeah, that's just like an open handed slap where the- he gets his finger right in his eye. Yeah. So Weird doings there from Uriah Faber, who now at this point, for the first time in his career, I believe, has lost back-to-back fights. Is that right? He's coming off the uh, the loss to Dominic Cruz and now this loss to Jimmy Rivera. Uh, yeah, it's the first time in his career that he has experienced back-to-back fights – back-to-back losses, I'm sorry. Uh, and oh. he's 1-3 and now in his last four. And this one seemed monumental to me. This seemed meaningful to me in the career of Uriah Faber because up to this point – Faber had had always been a dude that even when he was, uh, you know, on experiencing some tough times and losing all those championship fights in a row, he would still go out there and beat the Alex Caceres and Michael McDonald's of the world, uh, fairly quick and easy. So for him to drop this decision to Jimmy Rivera, to me felt like kind of a signpost in the road for, uh, the 37-year-old Uriah Christopher Faber.
1: Yeah, this is definitely the kind that he used to win, and it's not like he got absolutely throttled here or anything, you know, but at the same time, it wasn't like when the fight ended, there was any doubt as to who had won.
0: To anyone but Uriah Faber, who when the decision was announced 30-27, I think across the board for Jimmy Rivera did that thing where he acted surprised that he did not win the decision. Well, everybody
1: does that thing. Come on.
0: I know, but still.
1: Well, maybe he was just expecting a 29-28 sprinkled in there.
0: Like just the lopsided nature, yeah. is what did it for him, or
1: or you know, or maybe at this point it's just reflex that he he like even he thinks like, all right, well, this is the kind that Uriah Faber wins, Uriah Faber does not go out there and lose this fight, uh but uh, you know, I talked about a little bit in my mailbag beforehand that eventually that moment was gonna come for him, and what is he thirty eight uh and for me, kind of the stakes of every Uriah Faber fight from here on out is is Uriah Faber gonna start to show signs of age and the years in the game catching up with him. Is he is Uriah ever going to fall off yet? Because eventually that's going to happen if you stick around long enough. And here, I mean, I you know you got to say that it's that has to be part of it. And I think Jimmy Rivera also maybe better than a lot of people gave him credit for. But eventually you're going to get to the point when you're just not going to be able to roll in there and tool all the young bucks uh, and clock your your way into another yet another title fight seems like uriah Faber maybe has finally hit that point and damn it took him a long time
0: sure did jimmy rivera i believe now has won 19 fights in a row has not lost since late november of 2008 when he dropped a split decision to somebody named jason McLean, who does not have a wikipedia page uh and is now 4-0 in the ufc so yeah maybe this is uh also, I don't, we don't want to j- just not give any credit to Jimmy Rivera who came out and had a tremendous performance and beat Uriah Faber, which is still meaningful, a meaningful thing to do uh, for a guy of, of Rivera's standing in that division. And perhaps all along, Ben, Uriah Faber's Achilles heel would be to fight someone with a torso as wide as a compact car in Jimmy Rivera because that dude does not look like he weighs 135 pounds. He looks like his chest weighs like 175 pounds on its own. That's a big dude.
1: You're saying Jimmy Rivera might have a hard time getting in and out of uh, like a parking garage space? I'm
0: Mm -hmm. saying I don't think he buys his shirts off the rack. Okay. Let's just say that. That looks like a a tailored neck situation to me. (laughs) <laughs> like He's going to have to get a specially made collar.
1: I trust your judgment when it comes to a Taylor next situation.
0: You know you do. Last question this week comes from Eric from Texas. He writes, The MMA gods giveth and the MMA gods taketh away. Just as the news broke that Cowboy Cerrone was facing off against Robbie Lawler at Madison Square Garden, the UFC kills my MMA chub by announcing that the fight was off. Later, rumors start to circulate that one Mr. Nick Diaz is some, something that Cerrone uh, Some one that Cerrone could possibly fight. Did the MMA gods on top of Mount Zion's take one awesome fight from us just to possibly give us one even more awesome? What do y'all think? First of all, everyone knows this is the fight that I begged for on last week's show. And it dawned on me after this happened that the only thing more painful than not getting the fight you want is to get the fight you want and then have it immediately withdrawn due to injury.
1: Man, it's like... You've almost convinced me that the MMA gods were just specifically fucking with you. They may
0: have been. I should probably not put out an open call for the fights that I want to see on the podcast anymore, because we know they're listening to this show, and they're fucking with me specifically.
1: Yeah, your mistake was in daring to hope at all.
0: That's true. That is true. Uh, I did enjoy, though, that when this news broke kind of late at night on Twitter— Uh, last week, I can't remember exactly what day though. It was like an MMA Twitter funeral, but instead of everyone getting super dressed up, everyone did their best gifs, their best, like, God damn it, uh, (laughs) (laughs) posts on the internet. I saw some good ones. Saw some good ones.
1: Well, yeah. And I I mean, this one does sting, but then it also, there's that part of me that felt like in retrospect, well, obviously that was too cool. Like, come on, be serious. We couldn't have anything that awesome. There's no way we could be that happy. And you know no what? one would allow that.
0: This is going to probably be an unpopular statement, but I've seen this, the idea of Nick Diaz stepping into this fight uh, broadcast far and wide online. And I'm going to say that's not as cool. I'm going to say that is not even as close to as cool as the idea of Robbie Lawler against Donald Cerrone.
1: Well, no, because nothing, nothing is as cool. So fine. Did I agree you with just, you there. Did
0: you hear the email? Did the MMA gods on top of Mount Zion's take one awesome fight from us just to possibly give us an even more awesome fight?
1: The answer to that is no.
0: That answer to that is definitely no. At the same time. I have seen this opinion on the social media is from people saying Nick D like you just pull Bobby Lawler out and put Nicholas Diaz in and we're good. And you know what? We're not. (laughs) At the same
1: time, hashtag would watch. And you know,
0: hashtag would watch. But I'm not. It's not going to be my. Are you fucking kidding me? This week,
1: it's not. It's not going to uh, engorge your MMA chub,
0: so <laughs> yeah. to speak. I feel like we would all be best served to just pretend like that did not happen. Like <laughs> we would late. just all move forward. It's too late. Forgetting that Eric from Texas wrote in to tell us about the death of his MMA chub.
1: <laughs> I hope it can be revived, Eric.
0: That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks. You know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast on Tuesday through Friday. Something always happens. There's always some breaking news. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We like to think it's funny. And it's one newsletter that we know for sure is really easy to unsubscribe from
1: almost impossible to not unsubscribe from
0: that's a solid point as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, as we talked about you and I before we started recording this episode, I felt like one of the hallmarks of the spectacle surrounding CM Punk's UFC debut was uh, people's inability to be reasonable about it. Uh, And I know that we want to talk about that. We want to talk about how the actual fight went. Hopefully we'll talk a little bit about the potential future of Philip Jack Brooks continuing to fight in mixed martial arts. First of all, though, I did want to toot the horn of the co-main event podcast editorial staff for a moment, because this thing went exactly like we said it was going to go for the last couple of weeks on the show. And that was that CM Punk was going to come into this fight and that he was not going to be swallowed by the moment that he would be fairly game, given his uh, history in the world of professional wrestling, that he would, in fact, excel At the entertainment aspects of this fight, which I would say, uh, during the week leading up to the fight, I think that he was outstanding. And I think that even in his post-fight interview, like, that dude is going to give you some solid quotes. He knows what he's doing. Even gets his little paws going into the cage and looking off. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A little moment for you. And he was good at the weigh-in with his grin uh, and, you know, brought a lot of excitement prior to the bell, as Jim Ross (laughs) would say. Even, I would say, when he walks out to uh, Cult of Personality, which is his longtime uh, walkout music for professional wrestling. He's coming to the cage. I thought this is actually kind of a cool moment for whatever reason to see this happen. Uh, then, then just like we said, it was going to happen. He gets in there and he looks like a 38 year old man who's trained for two years in mixed martial arts and has to fight a guy who is a rookie, but who still looks a lot more like he deserves to be there. And in fact, uh, this one even ended by Rear Naked Choke, which I can't remember if we said that was going to happen on the show or just in the conversations that we were having. Because if you look at Mickey Gall's record, I think this is uh, all three of his pro fights now have ended via Rear Naked Choke. Uh, so his preferred method of victory. Um, So I guess I would ask you, did anything surprise you at all about the CM Punk experience? Uh, I guess I was surprised that he
1: managed zero offensive moves. You know, I didn't expect a whole lot, but to come right out there and throw some stuff that, when you go back and you look at it in slow motion, does not even resemble a punch. Yeah, you
0: sent me that on the internet today, yeah. and as I said in my reply. It looked like it might have turned into a punch had it gotten to its in- intended target, but you can, like, actually see in the slow motion version, as he throws it, CM Punk, look down at Mickey Gall as he shoots that double and be like, oh, shit.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and, you know, then just seeing how easily he he gets taken down, gets his guard passed, uh, when he's stuck inside control, does not seem to have even the the beginnings of an escape that he's working, just completely, utterly swarmed. And, you know, maybe he did get lost in the moment a little bit like when the actual fight started maybe you know he said that he feels like he can do better than that and i believe that i believe that he might be a better fighter than we got to see but it it seemed like the worst possible scenario for him because if he had just gone out there taken one punch on the chin and fallen down on his face then you could at least say well hey anybody can get hit and fall down it happens happens to the best of them but the way that this one went down gave us an opportunity to see a couple different aspects of his game And to see none of it working. Just absolutely nothing. Like, the best thing you can say about his performance there was that he defended the rear naked choke right before he didn't. Like, he made Mickey Gall have to try it twice. Uh, That's the most positive thing you can say about that. Now, I guess where we get into a point of disagreement among the MMA community... Is when we talk about what that means and what to make of it all, because you see a real defined split among people, and you're seeing it now even as the news about the disclosed payouts has come out, where it's re- revealed that he made a base, you know, show money pay with no win bonus in the deal of half a million dollars. Um, and it's always interesting when you see somebody show up with just show money, like when they there is not a win bonus portion even included in their contract.
0: But you see Plus actually just, Dave Meltzer reported points on the pay per view. So you would think points on the five hundred thousand dollar base right. and then some more is gonna come.
1: Right. And see, and then I guess like that that lends itself to the discussion of what we make of this, what how we put this all in some kind of larger context. And I'm a little bit surprised at how many, you know, longtime MMA people and, and, and hardcore fans, how many people seem eager to give out a participation trophy. For this one there's a whole lot of people being like Well hey at least he tried at least he had The guts to try and go out there and live His dream and I get that aspect of it and it is Like it does take some guts to go do that Knowing that a bunch of people are waiting for you to fail And are waiting to kind of celebrate Your demise that does take uh, You know some courage to go Out there and do that at the same Time it's not like he did it for 10 and 10 the way a lot of these other dudes like Mickey Gall it. did for 15 and 15 <laughs> Right you know he he did it for financial gain and you know and i'm sure because he wanted to do it and he wa- you know it was a dream that he wanted to live and everything uh, but it's not like he just he did it for charity or anything or just purely to test himself like he he made a a really good chunk of, of change to go out there and do that and i see people on the internet being like hey don't criticize him like 99% of people wouldn't even uh, try something like this really because for half a million do- i'll even just take the base pay chad i don't you don't even have to give me points on the pay-per-view i'll fight mickey gall for half a million dollars you know what i'll do i'll fight cm punk for literally half that that wow. to show the you the, just, the extent call, out
0: an actual call out the extent the of, the of my generosity
1: i mean a lot of people would do that and but it seems like there's just been there's so much grading on a curve when it comes to this guy like either because people like him or just that they they're reacting to the kind of standard line that says that the, the whole thing was a joke and, you know, kind of the the, the counter viewpoint is to prop him up or to, to praise him no matter what happens. But they're just like, well, hey, you know, clearly he's this he's a celebrity. He's not a real fighter. It's, they're taking a real dancing with the stars approach to the whole thing, which yeah. is like, well, yeah, of course, like Von Miller doesn't look like a dancer, but like for a football player, like for a guy who doesn't dance, he's not bad, which... Fine if you're on like some reality TV show, but if you're supposed to be in the best organization for this sport in the world, we do have to ask what the hell we're doing.
0: Yeah. And like I said before, I'm not mad about him being there this time. <laughs> I understand like the pragmatic nece- like necessity of of the UFC trying to make a little extra money and that and CM Punk signing the most lucrative MMA deal that he could sign when he wanted to try his hand at having a fight. I can't fault him for that. I frankly can't even fault him for his attitude. I feel like he's had a good attitude about this whole thing. Yeah, no,
1: the the right amount of humility, all yeah. that stuff coming all, in. All
0: the way through, I feel like he's acted uh, pretty good. But it does seem weird that people just want to say that you can't criticize the guy because he gave it a shot, especially when actual MMA fighters are sometimes so... Uh, like harshly criticized by the spectators like be- people would line up to tell you George St. Pierre was a pussy because he was beating people with his wrestling Uh and that's like arguably the greatest MMA fighter of all time at this point so it does seem like we're dealing with kind of a weird sliding scale here Uh I would say two things number one on the topic of would anyone do this my guess would be if I gave you, anybody that we know, or almost anybody who's listening to this show, the financial feasibility of quitting their jobs and training for two years with one of the top MMA coaches in the nation of their choice, and then at the end of that, the opportunity to fight Mickey Gall for $500,000, my guess is almost everyone who's listening to my voice right now would do that. Like, right. seriously, not even making a joke out of it, that anyone who is the relative age of CM Punk, who's in halfway decent shape would probably say, yeah, I could do that. And I think most people would probably look exactly like he looked when they got out there and, and tried to do the fight aside from the fact that he was prepared to perform in front of a large crowd. Uh, The other thing I would say just to maybe spin the conversation forward a little bit is that, like I said, I'm not mad that CM Punk got this chance to fight in the UFC, but now I feel like we should be done with that, that if he really is involved in mixed martial arts for the love of it, the only way that he has even a shadow of a chance of becoming a respectable professional level fighter is to go back to the gym, train a bunch more, fight at an independent MMA event against people of his own skill level and his own experience level and try to work his way up. And if he is able to win, like if he's talented enough and dedicated enough to win three or four fights, then bring him back to the UFC and have him fight a Mickey Gall-level guy. But at this point, I feel like we got our answer. Like, he's not good enough to be here. We did it once. We got our, our answer. We got our definition. Moving forward, I don't think that he should fight in the UFC again. I don't
1: necessarily disagree with you, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Because I saw the same like line of reasoning. Being, like, everybody's saying, like, okay, that was... Like, even some of the people, like, in the media who are like, hey, don't even dare say that he shouldn't be here. He's living his dream. He gets to try it. People want to see it.
0: Fact check. His dream was professional wrestling. I just (laughs) want to throw that out
1: there. You know, he gets to do this. Like, everybody else has to shut up about it. And then I've seen even some of those people be like, okay, but now no more. Now it's over. And I have to wonder why. Because he sucked? Because you knew he was going to suck, like because nobody can get good enough to compete at that level right. in that short period of time, especially at that age. Uh, it just it turned out to be exactly what we thought it was going to be. So why now would it not be cool? Just because like now you it's harder to justify once you've actually seen it. <laughs> <laughs> like of, like yeah. I because that just seems like I, I don't know exactly what you're saying. If you're like okay. It was it was totally fine, fine to the point of like getting angry at the people who would dare say it wasn't fine.
0: Well, I'm just clearly not one of those. People. I know, like- and, and
1: like you, you know, I'm not mad at him for for going out there and and getting this chance. I understand why everybody, uh, I understand why people were mad about it, especially if they're actual fighters. I understand why uh, the UFC wanted to do it, why he wanted to do it. That all makes sense to me. But I also I kind of don't get why. You can make the argument for it once, but twice would be unthinkable. You know, especially if you really do want to do this.
0: Right. I mean, all the
1: arguments he made for why he
0: should fight, why he should start in the UFC, those still apply. Maybe, but don't you think that the interest will be lessened now that we've seen him suck it up in his first fight? Like, I, you know... We we talked on this show for a couple of weeks about how it would be nearly impossible for a 38-year-old man with no previous athletic experience to get two years of training and come out here and compete with an actual professional fighter. It would be as ludicrous as, you know, a 38-year-old guy saying, you know what? I think I'm going to play in the NFL. Same thing. Same comparison, really. Uh But we said, you know, I think everyone had to leave the 1% chance. Like, well, what if he's just like a weird prodigy? What if he's a weird MMA prodigy and he's just super good at it to the point where – you know, people are online being like, well, what if he's just trolling us in that in that training footage? And Mickey Gall, I think, even spoke to this at the post-fight press conference where he's like, CM Punk's a good actor. Like, I couldn't take that that training footage at face value. Like, he, he might have been trying to dupe me. Uh, so there was that 1% chance. And I feel like this was a super – this was an anomaly in the UFC. We've never really seen this before. We've never seen them treat a celebrity fighter like this before. Previous to this – celebrities would come in like james tony uh sean gannon kimbo slice even a little bit like he like it always felt like the express point of having them there was for them to lose
1: yeah for them to get their asses beat so you can see this is for real right
0: this one they had to go out and find a a guy and bring him in for cm punk to even have like a credible chance and he still didn't it turned out have a a a credible chance so we've extinguished the idea of the one percent chance that he's a prodigy we've (laughs) seen the somewhat like amateurish results of throwing him in the cage, I think there would be less attention and interest paid to another fight because I think people at this point know that he's not that good of a fighter, and the UFC is now not in the same position that it was in when it signed him. Like we had to remember, they signed him at the end of 2014, which is like one of the worst years in UFC history. There, the company is in a different spot now with Conor McGregor and uh different owners now different owners and some big buy rates in the last few uh pay-per-view events you don't need to have a weird cash grab with a professional wrestler on the card a second time now
1: well okay you know one of the things though you mentioned the the other guys where they seemed like the point was to to bring them in so that they could get beat up and so you could yeah. see the difference they had between them
0: sean gannon fight brandon lee hinkle for god's sake so i believe was an all-american wrestler at ohio state and he just got Thrash. And they had James Tony fight Randy
1: Goddamn Couture.
0: He's pretty and, good. And, and pretty good at James. MMA Tony, fighting. by the way,
1: lasted about a minute longer than CM Punk did against uh Mickey Gall. Um but if, if if you if you want me to say that there was a like a silver lining here or a a positive aspect to how lopsided this thing was, I kind of still think it's that. Because I still think that there's a lot of people out there who if you just watch the ufc or you just you know you don't ever see any mma training you've never done any sort of fight training yourself and you just see these guys and they all seem to be you know more or less around the same level you know you see you you know enough to know that john jones is better than everybody else but you you don't know enough to know how good they are how good even the mid level ufc guys are compared to everybody else This was a good kind of pros versus Joes-esque reminder of that because you see a lot of even a lot of these same people who are now like really staunch defenders of CM Punk will be the same people to be like, LOL, Nick Lent sucks. No, he doesn't. He's really, really good. And I think especially like those of us who have been in fight gyms, like as journalists and stuff see it or like, you know, I've, in just doing recreational jujitsu, I've grappled with like pros at various levels, pros who these people would probably look at and look at their records and be like, that person sucks. Right. Uh, and they're way better than me. They fucking thrash me and I'm not terrible. And then you have to, you know, that gives you that experience of knowing like, okay, they, are way better than me and when they go out there to fight other pros those other pros are way better than them like the the gulf between you know the levels of talent in this is way bigger than you realize if you're just sitting at home watching you know UFC broadcasts and nothing else and this kind of helped make that point in a way you could not possibly ignore it
0: I'm gonna guess that we're gonna get to talk about CM Punk again sometime in the future So let's move on to, are you fucking kidding me? And then we can, we can go ahead to round two. Ben this week, my, are you fucking kidding me is uh, related to this fight because I did want to talk a moment about all the swears that Mickey Gall (laughs) dropped on the mic during his post fight, uh, interview. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and call it a profanity laced message of love and understanding. But are you fucking kidding me with all the swears, Mickey Gall? Uh, Everybody knows that we swear on this podcast. Obviously, we have an explicit rating. We're not here to act like we're God's gift to the king's English. But Mickey Gall, like, kind of reminded me of a teenager who was hanging out with his cool uncle and they, that guy's buddies, and maybe they let him drink one beer. And then, like, he drops one <laughs> F-bomb, and everybody's kind of like, ha-ha, all right, kid. And then he's like, oh, man, these guys think I'm awesome. So then he, like, drops 500 more F-bombs in conversation. Uh, look, Mickey Gall. I'm down to watch you fight Sage Northcutt, okay? But I don't know, man. Just dial it down a little bit. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? See,
1: that's when I had to write my, my column about this, I had to refer to his profanity use as inartful. Because obviously we're not against profanity use, but profanity is a medium. And God, you need to work a good in way it to like it. a great artist. And he did not really do that. He's there.
0: the CM punk of profanity.
1: Also, I love that his profanity lace message of love and hope ended in a call out of corny ass Sage Northcutt. <laughs> <Yes, laughs> because there's too much hate out there. And yet I'm going to pivot right to, you know, criticizing someone else who I want to fight. Uh, Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? Goes out just kind of generally to the incident involving Clarence Byron Dalloway, who, as you know, was scheduled to fight Mar Marbojoso on this card, had to pull out due to a back injury sustained in an elevator accident at the, the host hotel. Are you fucking kidding me? First of all, the blue blood, Clarence, Clarence Byron Dalloway was riding just a regular elevator with the no plebs?
0: being in an elevator.
1: What the hell is that, He should Chad? be carried in his private litter by his <laughs> servants. Where were the litter bearers? That's what I want to know. Are you fucking kidding me? And first, you know, that's that's just the obvious point, but if you want to make the blue blood ride an elevator, for God's sake, make it a private elevator. Are is this the first time we've done this?
0: With like an elevator attendant that's going to hand out hand wipes and maybe some mints? Yeah. Just
1: some some rosemary scented towels in your elevator. Come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Do I
0: have to do I have to spell it all out for you? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: Well, Chad, I'm just going to list some of the weird stuff that happened in the co-main event heavyweight bout between Fabricio Verdum and Travis Brown. Number one, the fight begins with the go-horse sprinting across the cage, leaping into the air, and connecting with a flying kick to Travis Brown's head. Side check kick, I believe. (laughs) Flying side check kick to the head, and it totally works. It totally works. He hit him right in the face. Then... He injures Brown's hand. When he throws a right hand, Brown blocks it and seems to dislocate his finger. Then he calls the chill dog, rare, which is respected by referee Gary Copeland, who, you know, before he can move in to stop the fight, Verdum connects with another left hook. Uh, Then we stop the fight. We get the finger situation taken care of, and they restart it. Against the rules, basically. Yep. Yeah. Then Brown gets knocked down, nearly finished, nearly choked. That's the first round. <laughs> That's just round one of what went all three rounds and then got weird. This, I mean, there was so much. We talked about the, the lulls of heavyweight to, or, or of UFC 203. This heavyweight foul really brought the lulls. Yeah. Uh, and in just incredible quantity.
0: It's a lot to process. Guar- I Yeah, guaranteed. And you didn't even, in your introduction, mention a near in-cage brawl that occurred... That's right. ...during the decision. Like, I think just prior to the decision, right? Right. Before the
1: scores could even be read. Right. Yeah, this... If you ask me, you know, who the biggest loser of this fight was, I have to say it was uh, Travis Brown and Ronda Rousey's coach, uh, Edmund Tarverdian, because for one thing, as has been noted on the Internet and the immediate aftermath of the fight, a lot of terrible cornering going on by him and just kind of terrible advice, uh, a lot of it of the just get up and kick his ass variety uh and not really super helpful to Travis Brown. I mean I noticed that when he comes back to the cage after the first round, after a first round in which he was nearly finished. He was dropped by a big punch, uh beat up on the ground, nearly choked, and he comes back and uh Edmund is telling him, you know, he's not fast enough for you, man. He's he's too slow. And you're just watching it going, I respectfully disagree. After what we saw just then, I think that he is fast enough because he kept hitting you in the damn face.
0: Yeah, and this was not how you say our first introduction to Edmund Tarvadian, AKA Edmund Targaryens. Uh, <laughs> his reputation precedes him, head into this fight so much so that recently, in an effort to insult Connor McGregor's coach, John Kavanaugh, Eddie Alvarez's coach, uh, Mark Hunt? Was Mark that, Henry. It? Mark Henry, that's right. Mark I knew, knew he had the same name as a, an enormous man that I'm also familiar <laughs> with. But Mark Henry, yeah. Referred to John Kavanaugh as, quote-unquote, Irish Edmund, right? With no other Sick explanation burn. of yeah. what that meant. We all just knew. Also, I would say, like, this is a good spot to pick for Fabricio Verdum, former UFC heavyweight champion and known far and wide as a dude who makes a clown face as, like, his thing. Like, if you're going to kick an MMA coach... In the cage after a fight, it better be Edmund Targaryen (laughs) because because like if you had done that to like Greg Jackson or, uh, you know, Duke Rufus or any other kind of illustrious quasi celebrity coach in MMA, people would be out for your head. He yeah. does it to Edmund and our first response is, well, what the fuck did Edmund do to to bring that on? Like, <laughs> we know whose fault this was without even having to check <laughs> yes. into
1: it. But I mean, that's true. Like, because I was making that same remark before about how if you do it to Greg Jackson, you don't make it out of the building. You know, uh, people are, are really coming after you there. If you do it to somebody like Duke Rufus or Javier Mendez, they're kicking you back. Uh, you know, yeah. you're you're not getting away Matt with Hume it. Matt Hume
0: probably just chokes you like Darth Vader
1: <laughs> using the power of the Force, right? <laughs> right. But, like, then it also reminds you, like, those guys would never be in this situation because they would not come after you trying to talk some bullshit after you won a very clear cut decision over their fighter, you know, Greg Jackson would shake your hand and give his curt nod as a professional. uh, And that would be the end of it. They just, they would not have instigated the situation the way he did. Uh, And, you know, it, it was kind of, you could see the look on Travis Brown's face when this whole thing kind of kicked off. You know, he'd just lost this fight. He knew he lost it. It wasn't particularly close. uh, And you know, it looks like this melee is about to start, and Fabricio Verdum is immediately into melee mode. Like, for a guy who is super good-natured and, you know, just super happy all the time, he he really got into that, like, okay, it looks like we're doing this, uh, and he was ready to do it. And Travis, the look on Travis Brown's face was just like, oh, god, damn it! this is the last thing I need right, right. now.
0: I was going to ask you that. I was going to say that that would be an interesting topic of conversation, was like, did this – fight make you feel at all bad for travis brown because it kind of did for me just because it went so horribly for for him like he couldn't even barely use one of his hands after the first round he primarily threw jabs uh after having to call the chill dog i mean i guess you could make the argument that went better for him than it ever possibly should have because the fight should have been over right then uh but like he gets kind of injured can't really fight uh i saw some statistics online about how badly he's been outstruck in his last several fights he has teamed up with a guy who's regarded as the worst coach in, in top-level mixed martial arts. Not
1: only teamed up with him, but left Greg Jacksons to go there.
0: And it feels like he can't really leave, right? Like, because of his love affair with Ronda Rousey, can Travis Brown decamp from the Targaryens? Can he go somewhere else? Or is he just stuck there? Like, if he I don't know, man. Kind of made me feel his pain a little bit.
1: If he can't leave then wouldn't that say something about the nature of his relationship with Ronda Rousey? Wouldn't she understand at this point? And if she didn't understand, like when it would just be like, okay, I'll just, you know, you'll, you'll let me know. I won't come to the barbecue that the Targaryens are throwing. I won't, I, we won't just be around each other anymore. Like we, we will try to avoid each other. Um, and I'll just go respectfully train elsewhere and refrain from talking shit about him in the media. Uh, but,
0: I don't know. Maybe that's true. And maybe this is a chicken and the egg argument. But if not for Ronda Rousey, does Travis Brown wind up in Glendale to begin with? Oh, no. And you're talking about a dude who at one point in his career was 13 and 0 and had won uh, like four fights in a row in the UFC. Uh, This is a guy who was a big time prospect and had kind of fallen on hard times before he left Greg Jackson's. But things have not gone well for him since he decided to go. To the, to the castle of the Targaryens.
1: True. Well, one thing I want to come back to is Fabricio Verdum in this fight, because um, I think we saw a lot of the good and the bad uh, that Fabricio Verdum is capable of. For one thing, I think we got to give the man his just insane daps for being willing to start this fight by sprinting across and jumping up and kicking the man in the face, because this is the same Fabrizio Verdum who four months ago lost his heavyweight title when he got knocked out basically by doing something stupid, right. which was chasing Stipe Miocic around the cage and running right into his fists. And he got knocked out that way. Then four months later, he comes back and he decides to start the fight that way. Like, that just tells you, like, okay, Probstia Verdum is locked into a worldview at this point, And that's kind of it. Uh, and it goes along with just, like, you know, you mentioned him making the clown face where that is kind of his... Like he's having some fun out there. He's just trying shit. But at the same time, he's also the same guy who he'll give away some rounds sometimes. He'll just he'll he'll screw around too much. You might even say, Fabricio, you play too much. Uh, He's the same guy who the days before he was supposed to fight Fedor in that when he he beat him in that that big shocking upset that kind of proved to be a turning point for Fedor Emelianenko's career. He was running around the host hotel in San Jose playing what. I know a Diaz would describe as touch butt (laughs) like just that's kind of his personality. Like he's not going to take that stuff too seriously. Uh, And that makes him a lot of fun to have around. But then also you see him in some of these situations where you wish like put your foot down on the gas a little bit, man. And maybe you walk out of here with people clamoring for a title shot. And instead you walk out of there with people just saying, man, that was weird.
0: Yeah. And I mean – I guess it says either that you give absolutely zero fucks if you start the fight with a flying sidekick or maybe it speaks to the level of respect that you have for Travis Brown, like you think like this guy isn't as good as me, so I might as well do this the maybe the uh the chance that I'm taking is not as as great as someone someone might perceive uh and that's not all like he threw like a cartwheel kick in this fight, I think he tried to do one of those weird scissor takedowns yeah. late in the fight, so. Uh, yeah. It seems like Fabrizio Verdoom certainly has a commitment to excitement. I guess might maybe you would say yeah. And then
1: other times, will just seems like he is content to stand there and stare at you. Like the commitment to excitement does not exactly hold up a hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah, true, true point. And and it would be have been interesting to see what it would have happened if he just blitzed Travis Brown in the first round and finished him. If if People had been talking about a, a title rematch because the stuff we're going to talk about in round three, I think uh, not only the kind of the weirdness been between Stipe Miocic and Alistair Overeem, but also like what happens now in the heavyweight division, uh, because I think your, your two options are to either have Miocic fight Kane Velasquez, which would be kind of uh, at least an epic meeting of the two young talents that you have in that division. Young-ish. Young-ish well, I mean, by comparison. Relatively, by heavyweight standards. Relatively speaking, uh, young-ish talents. Or maybe you run the Verdum rematch again. So yeah, it's possible that had Verdum had a more dominant performance, uh, maybe that would be the talk of, of the town instead of uh, there being a couple of different options for Miocic. Uh, and we can talk about that in, in round number three, which starts right now. Then the main event of UFC 203 was probably not going to compete with the co-main event in terms of sheer weirdness, but Stipe Miocic and Alistair Overeem managed to pack a fair amount of weirdness into their fight, so much so that when you go back and see that it ended at 427 in the first round, I think to myself... I thought it was longer than that. Yeah.
1: Now, see, that's what I was going to say. Less weirdness, but packed into a, a shorter time span. So you really got a lot of bang for your weirdness buck there.
0: Let's talk first about Alistair Overeem, who came into this fight with, I believe, a very different approach than we had seen from him in his most recent fights. At least I don't remember him doing this in previous fights. Where he has a very different stance. He's kind of sideways in a quasi-karate stance, and he's holding both of his hands up, kinda open. Like I said in the beginning of the show, looks out he looks like he just jumped out from behind a tree and yelled surprise. <laughs> and he's kind of doing this thing where he literally runs away to evade Steve Emyochich almost as if his game plan was to do that and then to counter when Steve Emyochich tried to follow him in, tried to chase him, tried to follow him. And it looked real weird, but goddamn if it didn't almost work uh, because Alistair Overeem sat Steve Amiocic down on his backside right in the middle of the cage uh, a couple minutes into this fight and darn near had a victory via guillotine choke, which Alistair Overeem has used to great effect in the past. Uh, and that says nothing of the weirdness of the phantom tap that was discussed after the fight. But just what did you make of Alistair Overeem's overall performance here? I assumed
1: that that strategy was meant to get him back into kicking range. I think that he he wanted to use his kicking game a lot, especially early on. And Stipe Mios, as you can tell by his response to that, really did not want to get into that with him. And you could see, you know, Stipe trying to circle away from, from that rear leg kick, which, and he said afterwards, like, he kicks even harder than I thought he did, and I thought he kicked pretty hard. Uh, and you know, he definitely did not want to get into that. And so, you know, you want to either stay out of that zone or you want to kind of crowd a kicker and keep him from getting into that and, and allowing him to just smash away at your body with that. Uh, he, he seemed like when he saw an opportunity to get right up in Overeem's face, he was not going to miss it. And Overeem instead thinking like, all right, I'll just turn and run away until I can get back into the space that I want to be at. Uh, and, but you're right though. I mean, like he, he did do some good work when he could get the fight where he wanted, when he gets Stipe standing still in front of him, uh, and at a, at a good range for him, you know, he was landing that left hand. He, he landed that, that hard kick at least once. Um, but it also seemed again, like another one of those heavyweight fights where at several different points, it looks like it's going to be over just immediately. Uh, and it's kind of who can hang on and and keep coming with something else and not screw up. Uh, And, it, you know, the, I'm sure you can go back and you can second guess a lot of aspects of that fight, especially about, you know, going for the guillotine and kind of committing to it after you drop Stipe rather than just trying to pound him out there. Um, Or even, you know, the way Stipe manages to kind of trip Overeem up, like that's how he sets up the finish of this fight, is catching Overeem, trying to do his running away maneuver, and tripping him up, and then using that to kind of bowl him the rest of the way to the floor, and pounding him out when he gets uh, in his guard, so... I think that it became a question of who made the better adjustments once they saw what the other guy was doing, and it was Bay.
0: Yeah, and he's a dude who obviously at this point we can categorically say hits really, really hard, very heavy-handed UFC heavyweight champion, uh, now has four knockout wins in a row uh, against some pretty high-level dudes in Mark Hunt, Andre Arlovsky, Fabricio Verdum, and Alistair Overeem. Uh, And this, I thought, was a big performance for him because he came in as an underdog against Verdum, and knocked him out with a counter uh, punch while Fabrizio Verdun was kind of chasing him uh, across the cage. And I don't think anyone thought that it was a fluke, but headed into this Alistair Overeem fight, I think this was one where we wanted to see Miocic prove that he was the UFC heavyweight champion and and, uh, legitimize himself as the quote-unquote baddest man on the planet, which is the, the way they always describe the heavyweight champion, which is in and of itself ridiculous when you consider what a coin flip many of these heavyweight fights appear to be. But <clears throat> this was a big win for him, and he looked good doing it, and I think it sets him up, uh like I said in the last round, for potentially a big fight against maybe somebody like Cain Velasquez or the rematch uh with Verdum. And as I've said all along, I feel like Miocic is a good heavyweight champion for the UFC. He seems like a guy who is uh, relatively smart. He seems like he can do a uh, good media appearance if you need him to and uh he seems like a guy who doesn't take himself overly seriously so uh uh and you know and his second job as a firefighter i think m- makes him potentially marketable in a quasi mainstream kind of way
1: yeah he has that ability to not say much and yet uh feels like he has those kind of one liners that turn into fairly decent quotes uh, even though it seems like you're going to really have to work to drag too many words uh, total out of him. What I wonder, though, about is the, you know, we talk about what comes next, and it's got to be on your minds if you're the UFC. That It looks like, hey, Stipe versus Kane Velasquez, that seems like a hell of a fight. Yes, it does. That seems like the fight you want to make. Uh, I, I would be excited to have that fight, and yet at the same time, if you're the UFC, are you not thinking, what are the odds we make this fight and Cain Velasquez pulls out hurt again?
0: Well, I mean, that's going to be the question about Cain Velasquez for the rest of his career, right? It's going to be kind of a double-edged sword with him. He seems like he's perennially going to be one of your top heavyweights, per- potentially your top heavyweight. uh, But he's always going to be kind of dogged by the injury bug. I feel like even if he puts together a bunch of fights in a row where he doesn't pull out, people are still going to think of him as the guy who spent the first several years of his career really waylaid by injury. So like, I feel like it's almost... Uh, risk you have to take. Like, there's no. I don't see like you have any other choice at some point. Like Cain Velasquez, if history is any indication, is gonna hang around and continue to be really good at fighting. Uh, so and especially in a division this shallow, I feel like he's just gonna be in and around the title picture for the rest of his career. You're you're not gonna be able to uh like keep him away from the title just because you're afraid that he might not show up to fight. Uh,
1: So you book Cain Velasquez, Stipe, but you tell Fabrizio Verdoom don't make any plans?
0: Yeah. Maybe stay in the gym and be ready, Fabrizio. Let's talk about the thing in this fight that I think everyone who's listening to this podcast probably wants us to talk about, about this fight. And that is the Phantom Tap, the interview with Alistair Overeem, which I would describe as painful. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and then after the fight, Joe Rogan's uh, plea to the UFC to no longer interview guys after they've just been knocked out, uh, because when we get to the Alistair Overeem after this after this loss, he is emphatic in what I would describe as extremely Alistair Overeem style fashion. Yes, where he's basically like, "I'm very sure I felt a tap," like he does. Like he's out there just making statements, uh, and then we go to the replay, and the replay does not go well for him. No, and he he knows. He can see that the replay does not go well for him. Uh, so, yeah, man, what happened here? What, like, did Alistair Overeem on the heels of just being knocked semi-unconscious awake in a living dream where Steven Miocic <laughs> had tapped out? Like, this seems unfair to him, frankly. It does. It also, though,
1: because the way that he made that assertion was so overeem That's what made it seem like you
0: wanted to correct us on a fact. Yeah,
1: it just it didn't seem like the rantings of a recently concussed guy who didn't know uh, what the hell was going on. It seemed like Overeem being really Overeem about it. Uh, And so that I think was what maybe does not get him so much slack. But it's true that there is a, a problem with having a guy who just woke up and tried to stand up and could not do it and then moments after that you're asking him what happened out there like his perception of what happened might not be totally accurate and yet at the same time like i do believe that you could have asked overeem 3 days later about that fight and he might have given you the same answer you know he might have he he, he might have just really felt that in the moment that he thought that Stipe tapped um it, even if you thought that Probably inadvisable to bring it up. Maybe that would be the difference, that if you gave him three days to think about it, he would decide, you know what, it's not going to go well for me. It's not like they're going to overturn it. Not like they're going to go back and look at the tape.
0: Right. Or maybe he would have looked at the tape and been unable to find the the tap. Right. I mean, there is that moment when he engages the choke when Miocis does kind of a weird thing with his hand up around the, the arms, which is clearly not a tap. But,
1: yeah, he's searching for where the arm is so right. that he can get his defense going, and even then, like I just I never buy the argument that like, oh, he got me with a fake tap because you're a professional, you know how this works, you latch on that choke and you squeeze until the referee grabs you and and gets you off of there, like you're not squeezing until you feel a tap, you're squeezing until the referee tells you to stop, and everybody knows that, so that wouldn't really work too much as an explanation on me, but you know you can understand how. In the moment, you're you're a little bit woozy, maybe, and your your pride is hurt uh, because you realize you just lost your probably the last shot you're ever going to get at a, a major MMA belt. Maybe you come up with some bullshit in your mind.
0: Yeah, I've talked before about the post fight interview and how weird I think it is, and like if you're here for the lols, like you get some gold sometimes, but you also get a lot of heavy breathing and people talking us through the mickeys replay. Uh, I guess I understand the necessity to have someone get interviewed in the cage after the fight is over, especially now that that's kind of what everyone expects. But I wouldn't mind not hearing from people that just got knocked out. I mean, sometimes you're probably going to get a, a rather eloquent post-fight speech like the one CM Punk gave that frankly made it seem like he'd been thinking about that for a while. What am I going to say after I lose, if I lose? Uh, and sometimes you're going to get stuff like, like what happened over him, which I still feel like was maybe a little bit unfair to him. Uh, especially to confront him with the footage immediately thereafter. Uh, well, if he's going to
1: make that claim, you yeah, got to confront no, him with the right. footage. Yeah, you
0: got you, you to gotta do it. But it's like it was almost like as when they came back from the replay, it was almost like you could see on Overeem's face, like, "Oh yeah, this was on film," and, <laughs> and that's not there. That he didn't tap out anyway. Weirdness, weirdness. Anything else you want to say about this before we uh, we close out the show?
1: Are you all the way into thinking of Steve Miocic as your UFC heavyweight champion, or does it just feel like another another guy's babysitting the belt for a little while?
0: Well, everyone in the history of the belt has babysat it for a short time, but like within the context of the heavyweight division, I'm on board, man. Like I think a second fight, second title defense against Kane Velasquez will be awfully tough. Uh that's but that's I, how
1: I feel. I need one more.
0: But I'm into it. Like I'm into Steve Miocic for the champion. I, I feel like he's the right guy for this moment.
1: I've been hurt before. I need I need to see one more titled fence, and then. Well, the second one is the doozy. That's the one
0: that gets a lot of
1: people. And the third one is how you become a damn legend. The
0: third one's non-existent. That's how you write history. At this point. Uh, all right, Ben. What's your uh, just saying stuff for this week, and then we will uh, get out of here.
1: Well, you mentioned Joe Rogan feeling like you know he is giving less of a fuck about possibly pissing off the bosses because he sees an end date up ahead to his tenure in the UFC. And I was thinking during this one about how amazing it is that Mike Goldberg has hung on for as long as he has, especially considering how almost universally reviled he is by the fans. And there was a moment during the broadcast when, you know, we got to do the requisite shots of around Cleveland, and he starts talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And he's doing his Mike Goldberg thing about how in the rock and roll hall of fame are the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And you realize, Oh God, he only has this one voice cadence. It's the only way of speaking into a microphone he knows, and he'll use it to describe absolutely anything you give him. He's just a human speaking spell out there. I'm just saying kind of amazing. He's held this job as long as he has.
0: It is. It is amazing. Uh, Then this week, I'm just saying another Ohio, Ohio area related, just saying stuff that uh, Olympic gold medal wrestler Kyle Snyder also happens to be enrolled at the Ohio State University was on hand for UFC 203 sitting there ringside next to a very happy looking Mark Coleman. Uh, And the day after the fight, he tweeted and I quote, I want to fight at UFC, end quote. And after I saw that. I tweeted asking if Kyle Snyder would fight in MMA at 205 pounds because, frankly, uh, the MMA world sort of really badly needs super talented 20-year-old light heavyweights right now. And after I tweeted that, I had a bunch of dudes come on my timeline acting like I was a super creepy AAU coach who was, like, (laughs) stuck in the middle school trying to sign super tall 13-year-old kids to my uh, all-star team. But this week, Ben... Uh, Kyle Snyder spoke to Damon Martin over at Fox Sports and said that he wants to fight, a, start fighting, like, right away. Uh, he said he wants to do that while he continues to pursue the goal of winning another gold medal. This is his quote. They, meaning the UFC, put on a great show. It's really exciting. I think it's something that I could excel in. I haven't done much boxing or jujitsu or striking or stuff like that. But I think I could pick it up pretty quickly. The crowd and the way they made the whole thing a big show was just exciting for me. It's something that I want to do. So I guess in reply to those few guys that came on my Twitter timeline, I'm just saying, what's up now, motherfuckers? (laughs) Is this what this is about? But no, I'm also just saying, while I do want to see Kyle Snyder fight in MMA, I kind of hope that this doesn't become a thing post CM Punk. That dudes just show up at the UFC and are like, oh, I want to do this. I'd like to get in there and are allowed to fight as 0-0 MMA fighters in the UFC. Obviously, a dude like Kyle Snyder has a thousand times more credentials and more respectability and reason to be there than CM Punk. But at the same time, let's let these dudes get some fights elsewhere before they show up and try to fight in the octagon. Because ultimately, I feel like having them do that is just kind of bad for the sport. You can't
1: tell me that... Tim Tebow didn't see this shit and think to himself, "You know what? I could at least do that well."
0: Tim Tebow shows up in Pawtucket or wherever he is to do his minor league stint in the New York Mets organization and is like, "Man, this is bullshit." Yeah, you know who call all you Friday? Is <laughs> probably what Tim Tebow would say.
1: <laughs> you know who will call you directly up to the show?
0: Yeah. And let's not pretend like maybe Tim Tebow wouldn't be kind of good too.
1: Here we go. This is how it starts. Dude's
0: put together. This is how
1: it starts, and this is how you end up with. Uh, Shia LaBeouf versus uh, the pharma bro Martin Shekel or whatever his name is at UFC 230.
0: Let's have people get some fights before they come to the UFC. I'm just saying.
1: Tim Tebow versus Ashton Kutcher.
0: Alright, well that's gonna do it for this week's co-main event. Woodwatch. Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at this fight night event from Hidalgo, Texas. As for right now though, we're done. We're through. We're out.
1: Tim Tebow. Versus Francis Ngannou. Okay. That heavyweight. Even
0: even money so far.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, we're gonna have to do this one on a barge in international waters.
0: This is the problem with having random 38-year-old dudes show up and have a fight. Anybody can do it.